I'd like to invite Emma Kate up for tonight's scripture reading from the book of Hebrews, chapter 2. Hebrews 2, 14 through 18. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless to him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who, through fear of death, were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make a propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. This is the word of the Lord. Last Sunday, I was in Arkansas. I grew up there, so we went back to visit my wife's family and my family for Thanksgiving, and it was a great time. A lot of memories from the past uh, invaded my brain. Some good, some not so good. One is I drove past the C&L co-op, which is what we have that, that runs our electricity in my hometown. And I drove past there, and I remember because when you're in a small town in rural Arkansas, the uh, convention space is extremely limited. And so the CNL place, the cooperative, had a, a room that people would rent out for showers and uh, bridal showers and things like that. So we went there one time when I was, uh, it was 30 years ago, so I was nine years old, and my mom had a shower when I was nine, so I had to go with her. But me, when the other boys who were dragged there, uh, we went out and played in the yard. Well, there was a guy named Starsky. Now, Starsky was a fifth grader, so he was big. And I was a third grader, not so big. And we, <clears throat> for some reason, didn't see eye to eye on a few things. And I remember, the details are sketchy, which you'll figure out in a minute why. But the details are sketchy. But for some reason, Starsky wanted to beat me up. And uh, Starsky also has a brother named Hutch. That is not a joke. That's for real. Starsky and Hutch, two brothers. So Starsky wanted to beat me up, and probably for good reason, so I don't want this to get around to him on the internet, because uh, he's still bigger than me. And, uh, but he wanted to beat me up. So I kept running out, being around him, and I would run back in. Run out, run back in. Well, one time I wasn't so fast. He tricked me, and he caught me. Next thing I know, I'm down on the ground. He's on top of me, hitting me, and just keeping me down on the ground. My best friend, Jonathan, runs inside. He grabs my mom and says, Miss Dietra, that's my mom. Miss Dietra, come out here. Daniel needs you. So she comes running out, and she breaks up the fight, and she, she separates us. She's like, what's going on out here, boys? And so I, I called Starsky a name, and, and my mom kind of like just popped my, my mouth like that. She's like, don't you say that. And I said, well, it's in the Bible. It's the word for donkey. And I said, Starsky was being that word for donkey. And... Uh, and she said, I said, it's in the Bible. She goes, not like that, it's not. <laughs> so I learned that day there's context, you know, on how to use words. So I remember she ran out and she, she saved me. Starsky was pummeling me. She came out. And why did she come out? What was her motivation for coming to my rescue? She loves me, right? 
She's jealous for me. I'm her boy. She's going to do what it takes to come out and, and protect me. She was very just in that moment, too. She didn't come out and start pummeling Starsky, but she separated us appropriately. She came to rescue me while I was in the dirt. And she was in this beautiful setting with pomp and circumstance and probably some type of punch. <laughs> the sherbet punch. You probably know what that is. And uh, she left that and she entered into my dirtiness because she loved me. It was, she was compelled. She was stirred to action. That story does a good job to illustrate a heart that is motivated by love. We love someone, so we act and we go. It doesn't do a good job of portraying my enemy that day because I imagine, as I said earlier, Starsky had good reason to pummel me. I'm sure I was being a brat at some point. But the enemy we face is unlike the enemy I faced that day. The enemy that every human faces is a spiritual enemy, and he has a name, Satan, also referred as the devil. Now, I know the, the devil sounds a little childish because we, see, we usually envision like a red uh, uh, being with horns coming out and a pointy horn tail, and so it seems childish even to say the word devil at times. But there are good reasons why we should not be entertained by the thought of a Satan or the devil. This enemy that we face has good reason to put us in our place. That reason is sin. Sin is what enslaves us. We're born into slavery to sin. We're powerless over it. You are me in third grade being pinned down by Starsky when it comes to sin. There's nothing you can do to stop. We need someone who is jealous for us, who loves us enough to leave perfection and get dirty and rescue us, who will run in and will free us from the slavery we're in. We don't need just a, fright, a fight broken up, though. We don't need some, just someone to come in and, and, and separate the two um, opponents. What we need is someone to actually come in and resurrect us from the dead. We're not just powerless against sin, but we are dead in our sin. And so we need resurrection. And so tonight we see that Jesus is jealous for us. This jealousy that he had for you and for me compelled him. It moved him. It motivated him to act. And we're going to see two ways that he acted on our behalf. The first one is he destroyed the devil. And the second one is that he freed us from fear. He destroyed the devil and he freed us from fear. The first one is here. Jesus destroyed the devil. So why? Why would Jesus do this? What would compel him to destroy him? As I said earlier, the story highlights that he was jealous for us, but why, why is he jealous for us? The reason Jesus is jealous for us is because we are his children. Look with me again in verse 14 of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. It says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood... He himself, that's speaking of Jesus, likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death. And then in case we don't know exactly who he's talking about here, he clears it up for us. That is the devil. 
So the first word up there, or the first time we, the word, the word children on the top line is referring to, uh, it's actually in the verse right before it in verse 13, and he's quoting the Old Testament. It says, Behold, I am the children whom God has given me. And so he's referring to those people who have become the children of God. And all those who call on Jesus as Lord become children of God. We are adopted into his family. We are children in need of salvation. We're not born into salvation. We're not born into being his child. We're born in sin. We are dead in our sin. But we need to be born again spiritually. A new birth. A second birth, which is talked about much in John chapter 3 in the Gospel of John. Jesus loves the world and he offers salvation to anyone and everyone. But we must receive Christ and call him Lord. So what did Jesus do? Can you pop that verse back up there? So what did Jesus do? For the children needed this. They shared in the flesh and blood. Jesus became flesh and blood. Likewise also he partook of the same as what it says there. He became like us in our humanity. He wasn't just above us, but he became like us. But he also remained God while doing it. It's a mystery of our faith, and it's very difficult to understand, but it's essential to our faith that God was both fully human and fully man. When you think of the reason for Christmas, the reason for Christmas, we think of Christmas trees, right? Those are the fun things. Gifts, family, I mean... I almost said, who doesn't love family, but I know of you. <laughs> uh, I love my family, by the way, and I know you do too. So the reason for Christmas varies depending on who you talk to. But from a Christian standpoint, the reason for Christmas, I think, can be summed up in two words. Good Friday. That's not a shopping term, like Cyber Monday. But Good Friday is a Christian term that that reminds us that on that Good Friday, that's when Jesus went to the cross. So the reason Jesus came at Christmas was because Good Friday was coming, and he had to do that. He came at Christmas in order to die. He didn't come here in order to be worshipped and served, but he came to give his life and to serve. So Jesus became flesh and blood. He became like us. Because God alone, if he just remained as he was, couldn't take punishment for humans. Because he doesn't relate to us. He's not in the same category. But human alone couldn't be good enough to be an appropriate sacrifice for us. So he was born as a human, but conceived as the Son of God. The Son of God was born to die. And his death destroyed the devil. So rendered powerless there. Another translation I like says that he might destroy the devil. I thought, wow, that really sets a better picture in my mind of the completeness of what God did. He destroyed the devil through his death because his death covered our sin. That's why it destroyed him. Satan is the accuser of us. He comes in and he reminds us, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you did this, you did that. He reminds us of that all the time. He's continually tempting us to sin more. He continually tells us you're powerless over sin. There's nothing you can do. You might as well just accept it. The problem with that one is 
kind of true. Because on our own, we are powerless against sin. But the full truth is, in Christ, when we are in Him, we are not on our own any longer. But we have His power, and He most certainly is not powerless against sin. In Romans chapter 8, verse 33, it reads, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. So this is a really beautiful chapter on the victory that we have in Christ, this section. And it starts off in, in 8.1. It says, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he's getting down, and he gets 33 verses into it, and he, he says, who's going to bring a charge against God's children, his elect, his chosen ones? He says, God is the one who justifies. And so Jesus rendered Satan powerless when he said, no, you can no longer accuse them any longer because I have paid for their sin. So it's saying he has no power over us any longer. He is destroyed when it comes to being the one trying to beat us down. Christ has destroyed that because in Christ, God justifies us. He adopts us into his family. We become his child. We're brought into a relationship with God that is based on grace alone through faith in Christ. We had no right to be called children of God. Heard a cool sermon on the way back from our trip, and he said something. Uh, he said um, we would be better off if we realized nobody owes us anything. Oh, that's pretty good. And then, in the context of what he was preaching about, it, it made a lot more sense. But there's this spirit of expectation many of us have that where we go around and we're we're looking for people to give us something, and when they don't give that to us, then we're angry, we're upset. And he's saying we would be a lot better off if we realized that people don't owe us anything. And he went on to say, also, we realize that we have everything, everything we could possibly want when we have Christ. We have life. You see, Jesus, his death, he came to die. His death justified us. He paid for our sins. His death and his resurrection finished. The resurrection proved that his sacrifice on our behalf was accepted by God the Father. So the devil is destroyed by Jesus' jealousy for his children. He loved us so much that he gave. Jesus charged onto the scene and he did what only he could do. He justified sinners in the eyes of God by giving his own life. In Romans chapter 5, verse 9, <clears throat> much more than having now been justified by his blood, by Jesus' blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. He's saying, how much more? We're being justified by the blood of Christ. How much more even does God love us and we're going to be saved from the wrath of God? So when we become children of God through faith in Christ, we don't look to God with this terrified fear that he's going to smite us with his lightning bolt in his right hand because he's already smote his son Jesus. He took the wrath of God for us. And now when we place our faith in him, Satan is silenced. Now I know he still talks to us and he still accuses us, but they're just that. They're just accusations. There's no merits to it because it's paid in full through Christ, justified by his blood. 
Wow. The second way that we know jealousy that moved Jesus to act on our behalf is this. He freed us from fear. Jealousy compelled the Lord, and Jesus freed us from fear. So because of the death of Jesus, we are now freed from the ultimate fear, death. Jesus has been accepted as the satisfying sacrifice, and we are justified in the eyes of the only one who matters, and that's God. There's nothing, nothing. Can you say nothing? You did great. Nothing. There's nothing Satan can do to change this. Nothing. He's powerless against this. It's decreed. It's accomplished. Jesus has sealed this with his own blood. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 15, we read this. <clears throat> and might free those. I'll read verse 14 to start. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who, through fear of death, were subject to slavery all their lives. So this fear of death also means that we are lifelong slaves. But Jesus came to free us from this fear, and he also came to free us from slavery. There's this song by Bethel Music, and it's entitled, No Longer Slaves. I heard it recently, and it popped in my head because it's based on these verses. It says this very thing. It says, I'm no longer a slave to fear, but I am a child of God. And then one of the verses says, it says, from my mother's womb, you have chosen me. Love has called my name. I've been born again into your family. Your blood flows through my veins. We become children of God. Faith in in Christ transforms us from slaves to fear and it creates, it transforms us into children of God. Do you know this? Like, do you know it? Like, really believe it and know it that you are a child of God? Are you living in fear? If so, ask this question Am I a child of God? Am I a child of God? Have I surrendered my life to Christ? Have I confessed my sin to God? And have I turned from it? Have I publicly testified to others about my faith in Christ? Through baptism, through church. And if you've done those things and you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, but you're still living in fear, then what lies are you telling yourself or or preaching to yourself even to cause you to live in a life of fear? Do you think you're powerless against Satan? Do you think he's going to win the battle over you? Do you feel like you're powerless over temptation to sin? That it's just going to happen. Do you accept defeat in your life? Or do you live a life of victory? You see, when we, when we have a, a defeatist mindset, there's a, an, an orphan mentality instead of a, a child mentality. An orphan is, is wandering, and they don't have a secure home. A child grows up with the security, ideally, of a husband and a, a mother and a father. And so the orphan mentality says, I'm unworthy, I'm, I'm a loser, I can't, I can't win the battle. A child says, I belong with mom and dad, that's who I am. I have their last name. 
But sometimes we become children of God, but we still live like we're an orphan. And a lot of the reasons is because we, we don't grow in our faith. We're preaching a false gospel to ourselves once we become children of God that, okay, now that you're a child of God, now it's up to you to prove yourself. And you need to really step it up. And when we fail, it kills us. It crushes us. You know why? Because we're preaching a false religion to ourselves that we can somehow earn the grace that God's given to us. But see, you're not created to live in a life of fear. That was never God's purpose for your life. You are created for a robust. Can you say robust? Robust. Vibrant. Say vibrant. Vibrant. Vibrant's a fun word to say, I think. A robust, vibrant relationship with God, and you are created for a robust and vibrant relationship with His church. You are created for that. He's delivered you from your last enemy and your greatest enemy, death. So you have no need to fear anything in this life. In Christ, you are victorious, you are a child of God, you are loved, you are adored, and God smiles when he looks down upon you. Remember when Jesus was baptized and the voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. When we are baptized in Christ, God looks upon us the same way he looks upon his only born son. He is happy with us. You are freed because of Christ. You are free to have a life of joy. You are free to love others in extravagantly selfless ways because you have all you need. You are free to serve others knowing that you've already been given the best gift ever. You can approach Christmas. Listen, kids, you can conquer Christmas. Even if you don't get what you want, you can have Christ. Some of you are like, I'd rather have an iPod. I don't think they make iPods anymore. Yeah, I'll, I'll figure that out eventually. How about an iPad? You see, this is what Christmas is about. Christmas is about victory. It's about freedom. Anticipate that this year. Our victory and freedom, they were earned through the defeat that Jesus experienced on the cross. Jesus endured the greatest of all penalties because, why? He was jealous for you. Look with me in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on who? Jesus, not ourselves, fixing our eyes on him, not our failures, fixing our eyes on Jesus, not how good we were last week, because sometimes we may kill it that week, right? I did so good when we come to church, we're so excited. Well, why are you so excited this week and not the week when you blow it? It's the same gospel, whether you succeed or whether you fail. Man, we're so distracted, aren't we? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author And perfecter, the finisher, he started it, he completed it, of faith, who is for, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. 
He endured the cross because there was this joy that was set before him. He despised the shame, and he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now keep that up there for a minute, because we're going to look at that for the who set the joy, for the, who for the joy set before him. Do you know what the joy set before Jesus was? You. We are his crown. He has a heart of justice. And he makes things right. He has a heart of love. And neither one of those will ever be compromised. He loved you so much that he gave his life for you. And he died for you so that you would not have to live in fear of death. And you would not have to live a life of slavery. On that day 30 years ago, I needed somebody to help me. Starsky was whooping me. It's in Arkansas. I think you said whooping in New York too. <laughs> no? Just me? Okay. I needed someone who was more powerful than I was because I was overmatched. I needed someone smarter than me and wiser than me. I needed someone who had a heart of love for me, someone who was jealous for me. My mom was moved to act because she was jealous for me, and she would do whatever it took to protect me. Why? Because she loves me. You see, Jesus loves me even more than she does. And that goes for all of you. He loves you more than the person you believe loves you the most. He's jealous for you. He sees that you're outmatched, that you need his help. He sees that you're defeated. He sees that you can't win the fight on your own power. You are helpless. You are the one on the ground being pummeled by the devil. And what Jesus has done for you and me is he's left his perfect heaven and he's entered into our broken world. But here's the deal. We aren't innocent little kids being bullied by an enemy. We're guilty of sin and rebellion against God. As a result of this sin, we are enslaved to it and live in fear of death. So Jesus couldn't just come down and beat up our enemy. He had to justify us and make us innocent. And the only way that could be done was through his own death. Good Friday is the reason for Christmas. Jesus came to die for you. He entered the world as the hero of the story, but he died the death of a villain. I want you to know this as you move forward towards Christmas. Jesus is jealous for you. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that you have shown us your heart. When we see Jesus and we, we look at how he acted and, re, and, and responded to, to our plight, we see a God of compassion and justice and mercy and grace And that is the God that we are worshiping tonight. You are the one true God, and you have revealed yourself in Jesus. And tonight, I pray that you would move in powerful ways in our hearts, that we would respond to you and realize that your jealousy for us moved you to redeem us and to save us from our enemy. Thank you, Lord, for being jealous for us. 
May we learn to love you more, and may we learn to love people the way you love us. For your glory, amen.